0: We all know that money is important, but money can only go so far. There are things that money can buy, and the most important parts of life, like love, health, and family, that money can't buy. In this episode, I chat with Doc G, aka Jordan Grummet, about his new book on money and life advice as a hospice doctor. The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show, The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Welcome to the Mental Health and Wealth Show podcast. This is your host, Melanie Lockhart. My journey with money and mental health started in 2012 when I was depressed and anxious about my student loan debt. In 2013, I started my blog, Dear Debt, which chronicled my debt payoff journey and changed my life. I later published my book of the same name about how I paid off $81,000 in student loan debt. It was my time blogging that showed me that I wasn't alone in my mental health struggles around money and that my own mental health impacted how I related to money. My mission now is to help others feel less alone and tackle these difficult topics. As a disclaimer, I am not a mental health professional or a financial professional, and all content on the show should not be considered professional medical or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. If you are in distress, please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much for being here, and if you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe and review on your favorite podcast platform, and feel free to share episodes on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockert. I would love to hear from you. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, I'm interviewing Jordan Grummet, also known as Doc G, who was born in Evanston, Illinois in 1973. His interest in becoming a doctor was ignited when his father, an oncologist, died unexpectedly in the prime of his life. This profound loss not only inspired him to practice medicine, it has given him a unique perspective as a financial expert, challenging him to think deeply and critically about concepts like wealth, abundance, and financial independence. After graduating from the University of Michigan, Jordan received his medical degree from Northwestern University and began practicing internal medicine in Northbrook, Illinois. He currently is an associate medical director at Journey Care Hospice, and after years of blogging about financial independence and wellness, Jordan launched the Earn and Invest podcast in 2018. It's so great, you definitely have to check it out. In 2019, he received the Plutus Award for the best new personal finance podcast and was nominated in 2020 and 2021 for best personal finance podcast of the year. His book, Taking Stock, a Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life, is being published by Ulysses Press in August 2022, and that is why he's here today to chat, and I'm so excited. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Melody. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I am so excited, too. It's been a few years since we've chatted. I've also been on his podcast and talked about mental health and money, definitely something you guys should all check out. And. You are such an important voice in the community and as someone that has just finished your book, I think this is such perfect timing for this and you know given the nature of my podcast which is all about mental health and money and having these deep taboo conversations, I'm super excited to chat with you about everything that you've brought into the world and you know kind of as you mentioned in your bio, you started your early life with this profound loss your your dad passed away suddenly when you were a child how did that event affect your mental health and change your financial life
1: you know it affected me in in a bunch of ways for one i was seven years old and i idolized my father i wanted to be just like him But that's a very self-centered time in our lives. So when he died suddenly and unexpectedly, part of me felt like I was to blame for it. And I remember carrying a lot of that guilt through childhood. One of the ways of dealing with that guilt is I kind of took it upon myself that I was meant to walk in his footsteps, to become a physician like him, and to fulfill the role that he never got to fulfill. So it really set me off on this path to becoming a doctor which changed my life in so many ways you know for one it kind of set my financial course forward because obviously being a doctor while very expensive to get into medical school etc it was a set financial path that allowed me not to think much about money so it was not something i really thought about in my younger years or even in my young professional life because i so identified with this idea of being a doctor just like him so it had a profound effects on me mentally, as well as my concerns and thoughts about money.
0: And in the book, you also mentioned that your father had a life insurance policy, which was also used to help pay for that college to help you graduate debt free. Is that correct?
1: It is. You know, one of the ironic stories about my father is he thought he was going to die young. And he told my mom this this was part of what he thought his legacy would be so he did get life insurance and that life insurance now you're talking about right like 1980 1981 was for 200 Uh my mom took that money put it in the stock market in the 80s we had incredibly high inflation like today but bonds were paying like 15 or 16 percent and that money grew and grew and grew and paid for all of us to go to college that's me and my two brothers it paid for me to go to medical school and my brother mark to go to graduate school and there was still a little left over something that's very ironic though my dad had joined a new practice about eight months before he died and part of that practice Part of his contract was they were supposed to get a million-dollar life insurance policy out, which would have been immediate financial independence for my family. That million dollars my mom could have used then to pay for all of our needs. She wouldn't have even had to work on her own. The practice forgot to get the life insurance policy. So when he died, they went to their books and realized that no one had bought the policy. At that time, my mom was too distraught to even think of suing them or anything for it. But... uh life could have been strangely different. So we, on one side, benefited from one life insurance policy, uh, but another one was absent.
0: That is so rough to hear. And yeah, I know, I can imagine when you're going through something like that, you're so focused on the immediate loss. And as you mentioned, you had this great benefit for your education. But then on the other hand, this error had such a grave impact on your family's financial life in a different way. And that is is so unfortunate, but you know, as you mentioned, you became a physician to follow in your father's footsteps, and you eventually started working in hospice care, working with people as they transition from life to death. How did doing this work change your view on life and money?
1: So interestingly enough, when I went to medical school, in my first week of medical school, I joined the hospice program to be a volunteer, one of the first patients i ever saw during that first week of medical school was a hospice patient this was kind of life in my body telling me what i wanted to do with myself but of course i ignored it so when i got to the clinical parts of medicine in the later years in residency i decided to do general internal medicine uh, which really was very different from hospice it i did take care of some elderly during the dying process but mostly i was taking care of young people and people with non-surgical problems As I got more and more burned out in medicine and started thinking maybe this thing I had identified for so long with, this thing that connected me to my father, wasn't my full and total identity. I started looking for ways out of practicing traditional medicine. So that's how I got interested in financial independence and learning about wealth management. I realized that I was financially independent because my parents had taught me some great financial modeling. And i started looking at my job and i said well what do i still enjoy what still feels like it's part of my identity i whittled away almost everything but what i still felt had some sense of identity and purpose to it was my hospice work and so i stuck with the hospice work at the same time i had delved deeply into personal finance i started a blog eventually a podcast i wasn't as interested in how you get to financial independence because for one i had already gotten there but for two there were lots of great resources, podcasts, people who could talk about that. What I was more interested in is what now and the why behind why we do what we do with money. As I built that life out as well as started practicing only hospice medicine, I realized that the dying had lots to teach us about money and life, and it was in a sense I saw my two different lives colliding, those two things that I was spending the most money on or the most time on that they could actually inform each other. And that's how I kind of connected this idea that the dying and finding out that they have a limited amount of time left do a lot of deep thinking about purpose identity and what their true goals are and what a gift that could be to all of us if we did it way before we received a terminal diagnosis. And so those two worlds all of a sudden, made sense when they when you when you tell someone on the outside, "I'm a personal finance expert," and by the way, I'm also a hospice doctor. They look at you kind of funny, uh, but <laughs> yeah. after being here for a while, they actually fit well together.
0: Yeah, I mean to think about how to use your money in the best way possible to enjoy your life, and how can we feel more alive today? Because. Something you mentioned in the book is that we are all dying every day, and it's not a pleasant thought for a lot of us, but it can be a powerful thought for us to refocus our priorities and how we spend our time, and I think your book is so well-timed because... Obviously, many of us know that we are going to die eventually. We obviously hope that day is far, far, far in the future and not anytime soon and it will be peaceful and easy, but you know, those are all projections and fantasies. We have no idea what's coming for us. But in the past few years, we've had COVID, we've had war, we've had monkeypox, we've had shootings, we've had so many things. The list is quite endless about, you know, the ways people are suffering and dying quite literally in front of our faces. And so I think our mortality is very clearly in our face at all times. And so I think now is the perfect time to adjust our lives and are thinking about money and time and we're seeing that with the great resignation, we're seeing that with people kind of not wanting to work as much or as hard and completely shifting. And so, you know, I think the work that you are doing is is so important and I wanted to share some of the stories from your book I remember reading about this one person who had a very rich life and rich in relationships, but they had very little money on their deathbed. And you've also worked with people who've had lots of financial resources, but no meaningful relationships. So, you know, what do you believe is the core of having a rich life, regardless of money out of everything that you've seen working in hospice? What are the things that people really value that they find are important in their last moments?
1: So here's what's interesting. When I've sat with the dying, almost never do they say I regret that I didn't work nights and weekends. Almost never do they say I regret that I only ended up with a net worth of $500,000 and I really wanted to hit that million mark. No one says that. What people tend to regret is that they didn't spend the energy, courage, or time doing those things that was most important to them. So the big question becomes for most of us, what is important to us? I like to use the terms purpose, identity, and connections. This is this idea of what are those things we can do today so we don't regret in the future, but I hate to focus on regrets because it has a kind of negative spin. More importantly, what can we do today to feel a sense of happiness and contentedness? Often doing this hard work, understanding our purpose identity and connections is something that we don't necessarily want to do and so we put it off we worry about money we worry about achievements we worry about job titles and in a sense all of that's low-hanging fruit it may not be easy to reach financial independence but it's easy to work out how you reach financial independence like we can wrap our head around the fact that we should work longer we should save more we should invest more aggressively maybe we should start a side hustle Like, there are obvious and clear solutions. So we like to wrap our mind around those kind of problems. But to say, what's my purpose in life? What has meaning for me? Who are those people that I should be most connected to? Those are much harder questions. But undoubtedly, that's what the dying regret. When you ask them, what parts of their life didn't they fulfill? It's focused on those things, like what had meaning for them that they kept putting off because they didn't want to do the hard work.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think there's so much to unpack there. And we need to think about what brings value and joy to my life. How can I, quote, die with zero? That's also a book that I recently read that changed my life. And I just love the concept of dying with zero, both in experiences and money. Like, how can I be an empty vessel that has fulfilled all of my needs and goals and not all of them, but you know what I'm saying to, to a point where you feel satisfied, like you feel like I've lived a good life. And I think people can take an inventory right now. Like, you know, it's one of the exercises in your book. Like it's not fun to think about, but what if you did get a life changing diagnosis? Like, do you think you've lived a good life? And if your answer is no, what would you do differently? How would you change that? And, you know, I've (laughs) had my anxiety uh, and some health issues recently, which have kind of made me tinker in (laughs) that space anyways. And I've actually come to the conclusion, like I've had a pretty cool, interesting life. And obviously, I hope I have many more years to come and I can be healthy and, and well and, you know, thrive. But that was kind of a good litmus test for me to be like, I am proud of my choices. And it's not been easy, but I've I've had fun, I've had good experiences, I've had good relationships. Like, how can you maximize this feeling of of living life, right?
1: Yeah, and I, I like what you just said there because a lot of times we focus on the regrets. What haven't I done so that I can then go do those things now? Cause I'm doing some type of life review at an earlier age. But the other part of that that we don't talk about often is very true, too. Sometimes during this life review process, you can also celebrate what you are already. And there's a certain amount of strength with coming to the terms of God forbid, I get hit by a car tomorrow and die. I've lived a pretty good life. And that's also part of the process, which I think is really important. We focus and struggle with enough so much in this community. And a lot of times we're talking about enough money or enough achievements or accolades but when you do this life review process if you're lucky you can also say something to the extent of i am enough and reviewing your life can really help you do that and that's a really good way to live the rest of your life like if you can come to terms with what you've done and what you haven't done if you can celebrate all those things that you're proud of all those things that have helped codify your purpose, identity, and connections. Um, it's a, I think it's a big part of, of what we call, quote unquote, happiness, or, or feeling good about what's happening to us and dealing with the roadblocks ahead. Because even the most lucky of us are going to deal with life issues, financial or otherwise. And having that strength of saying, I am already enough as you face these problems is a great starting place.
0: I love that. I am enough. I think that is so important. And especially just dealing with the day-to-day mental health challenges that we all face. Also just saying, I am enough. I'm enough right now. And I'm doing enough. And, you know, kind of thinking about day-to-day enjoyment. Like I know when I'm stressed out about work or a deadline, I always try to think about, you know, I'm not going to really be thinking about this on my deathbed. I'm not going to be worried about, oh my gosh, this article that I have to do or this or that. It's like, I'm not going to be thinking about work on my deathbed so I can kind of let go of that stress because it's not that important to me in the long term and that can be a great kind of reframe and obviously we talked about you know how there's so much more to money especially when it comes to living life but obviously money is a very important topic and it's something that we need as a resource to help us should things go awry and I've actually heard of this, but never so explicitly as in your book, something called a Medicaid divorce, and I just would love for you to share what that is and how it works because I think for a lot of people who are not familiar or just have never thought about it like might think this is very strange, but it's probably more common than we think, and I would love for you to shed some insight about that
1: so medicaid divorce i took care of a hospice patient but pre-hospice he was taking care of his own wife and she lived in a nursing home and most people don't realize this health insurance and medicare pay for acute hospitalization and if you need a nursing home or rehab for short term they'll pay up to 90 to 100 days but if you are disabled enough that you need to live in a nursing home long term, you have to pay for that out of pocket, which can be devastating. Nursing homes can cost fifteen dollars to $20,000 a month for someone to stay there. There is a safety net for everyone. If you run out of money, they don't kick you out of the nursing home. You apply for something called Medicaid, which is the government safety net to pay for health care costs, but also will pay for general living costs for people who live in nursing homes when they've run out of money. But here's the problem. If you're married, you hold your assets together. And so you have one spouse who's living in an apartment, who has to buy food and pay for transportation, do all the normal things. Then you have the other spouse who's in the nursing home and you're spending down all of your savings to get to the point where you can afford Medicaid. Often, if you play by the quote unquote rules, by the time you spend down enough to pay for Medicaid, Medicaid will pay for the one spouse who's living in the nursing home, but the other spouse who's healthy, you had to get rid of all the money to prove to Medicaid that you didn't have anything before they would pay, so the other spouse is left with nothing to live on. So what's happened is people find a way around the rules, which is to do what's called a Medicaid divorce, two people who are very much in love and don't want to get divorced, sometimes get divorced so that they could separate their assets. So the one spouse can live off of their money and the other spouse can spend down and then be able to utilize Medicaid. This patient that I'm talking about whose wife was in the nursing home, she eventually died after they got a Medicaid divorce. He had lived a very purposeful life with lots of connections. He loved his life. He loved his kids but they had used up all their money. And when he himself became sick with congestive heart failure, there was very little money around for the creature comforts. The point of the story is, if we talk about Maslow's pyramid of needs, which we often do, we look at things like basic security and enough money and, you know, the basic needs are at the bottom of the pyramid. And we have to kind of climb those basic needs to get to the higher needs, which are self-actualization, which is things like love and empathy and purpose. And this patient I talk about was at the top of Maslow's pyramid at self-actualization, what a lot of people would consider a happiness, but didn't have any of those first parts of the pyramid covered because he had run out of money. And so I make the point in the book that we should flatten Maslow's pyramid, we can't work on our financial needs first and forget about purpose, identity and connections, or Maslow would call it self actualization, but I think they're the same thing. We've got to work at, on them all at the same time. And so we have to flatten that pyramid and start working on all the important life aspects, as opposed to waiting to get our finances in order to start enjoying our life and doing the important things.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important that we try to figure out how we can enjoy things at whatever stage we are at. Because if not, we will be stuck in that I'll be happy when syndrome. I'll be happy when I pay off my debt. I'll be happy when I get married. I'll be happy when I get divorced. Not of this marriage. I'll be happy when I move. I'll be happy when X, Y, Z. And it just never stops. And I think as we've seen with the nature of life and relationships, things are always changing. So how can we find some day-to-day joy now while also building more purpose, more community, more meaningful lives while also protecting our finances, right?
1: Yeah. And I I think that's really the goal is as opposed to building a financial framework first, we have to really think about purpose, identity and connections first and then build the financial framework around that. And I think that's kind of that basic mistake we all make.
0: Ooh, maybe it's like a brick house, like you are inside the house and the brick by brick of the brick house is like the security and the finances protecting you.
1: Yeah. I mean, and isn't that the idea? Like, we keep forgetting money is not the goal, it's a tool. And it's a tool to utilize, to better live out a life of purpose, identity and connections. Instead, for some reason, we start thinking it's the goal. And so what happens when you set your life priorities based on the goal of money, you eventually get to that place you wanted to be and find that you don't know who you are, and you don't know what you want to do with your time. And that can be very disconcerting.
0: Yeah, definitely. This reminds me of a quote that I unfortunately don't remember who it's from or I can't credit it properly, but it was basically the gist of this. If you have a money problem that money can solve, you don't have a problem. And I thought that was so profound because it's pretty straightforward. If you have a money problem, that money can solve, and you have that money, it is solved, right? Like, my cats need to go to the vet, I'm going to throw money at the problem. I need to go see the dentist, I'm going to throw money at the problem. Obviously, if I don't have money, then I have a money problem, right? And so I think what we're trying to do is to solve the money problem, and a lot of people have money problems, we know that, but I think when we're talking about life and purpose and meaning and also financial security, how can we... Have money to throw at these problems and then realize that there are other problems, as you know, like you've dealt with. Like, there's not enough money in the world to save someone from cancer, to bring someone's life back. So, that in my mind is like so great to have financial security because you're just like, I'm gonna throw money at this problem and just solve it and like not think about it. Obviously, if you have quote money problems, then you need to work on that so that you can't just throw money at the problem, but then as we've you know realized there are these other problems in life that are much deeper that money cannot solve.
1: Yeah, in the book, we, we use the concept of money is like oxygen. If you don't have enough oxygen, you'll do darn near anything to get it. On the other hand, once you have enough oxygen, giving you more does nothing for you. And I think a lot of life problems are like that.
0: Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. I want you to pause real quick and take a mindful minute. Close your eyes and take a deep breath. And exhale. Take a deep breath again. And exhale. Taking a moment for yourself is so important for your mental health. Now, before we get back to the show, I just wanted to say, if you are enjoying this episode, please review the podcast and share it on social media and tag me at Melanie Lockhart and share your thoughts. It'll really help spread the word about the show and help others with their money and mental health. You can also support this independent podcast and buy me a coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. Yeah. So, I wanted to transition a little bit. So you discovered the FIRE community after feeling like you had a bigger calling aside from being a physician. Yet some people retire early and have no purpose or direction. You now you've been in this community for a while and you've talked to a lot of people. Like, What do you think people get wrong about FIRE?
1: So financial independence retire early. My biggest problem with it is I believe at least it started as a movement based on fear. Fear that I'll spend my life doing things I don't like to do, fear that I'll be in this job I don't want to be in, and ultimately fear that someday I'll run out of money because I don't have enough. And I wanted to kind of flip the thinking to more of abundance as opposed to worrying about fear. I wanted to focus on the things that I thought were more important, purpose, identity, and connections. Let's talk about those positive things we can build up as opposed to the fear of the things we're going to miss or not have enough of. And so that was always my biggest problem with the FIRE movement. Again, it looked at money as the goal as opposed to the tool in which we can hopefully meet some of our goals. And it also doesn't recognize often that money is just one tool And we have multiple tools at our disposal. So we have our energy, we have our time, we have our passions, we have our connections, and all of those are tools also. Sometimes I felt like in the FIRE movement, we only focused on the one tool, the tool of money, and we made it a goal as opposed to a tool, and then treated it with fear as opposed to looking at what we really wanted to do with that money.
0: You brought up so many great points. I love that you brought up this word fear because... I hadn't really articulated it that way that some of the reason I have not really latched on to the FIRE community, like I like the idea in theory, but I've never been super hardcore into the community. And I think that's exactly why is this kind of permeation of fear that surrounds this concept of like, I'm fearful of wasting my life. I'm fearful of giving my time to this job. I'm fearful of running out. And it just... What are we working towards? And I think, you know, as you mentioned in the book, a lot of people make their number one goal. I'm going to reach fire. I'm going to reach fire. I'm going to save up to this one amount of money. And then they get there and they have such a letdown because they're like, now what? They don't know what to do with their lives. They don't know what to do with their time. They don't know how to spend their days. And if working and making money was your sole source of identity, and then you take that away that's gonna be an identity crisis.
1: Yeah, in the book, I, I, I mean, I call money a lot of things. At one point I call it a mirage, the mirage of wealth. I also talk about something called the money mind meld. It's this idea that we get, become so enamored with money that we don't realize that, again, it's a little bit of a false god or a false construct and it's there for more as a tool than a goal. It's hard for us to see past it, right? I mean, it's just it's this shimmery, shiny object. And I get back to the point that it's the low hanging fruit, like, we can answer the question of how to get more money. But most of us really struggle with the questions of how do we build purpose into our life? How do we get more in touch with our innate sense of identity? How do we define those connections in our life that are most important, A lot harder questions. And so it's much easier to think about the other stuff.
0: Yeah, and I think there's so much wrapped up into our self worth and our culture. I mean, we are kind of raised to work and obtain titles, obtain degrees, obtain social status. And when we're not working, I think it can bring us down quite a bit. And I think it's important that we figure out who we are without a title who we are without work? What do we enjoy doing when no one's watching? What do we like to do on vacation? Because I'm one of these types of people where I truly don't understand people who experience boredom. Like, I don't think I've ever experienced boredom in my entire life. (laughs) Like, I'm like, there's so many books to read. There's so many movies to watch. There's languages to learn. There's naps. There's beaches. There's geography. There's art. Like I just think the world is so much in such a great way that like i'll never have enough time in my lifetime to learn everything that i want to learn so that's why i say like i don't resonate with people who say that they are bored but i just want to kind of bring that up in the sense For people who might not be sure about what they want to do when they retire or stop working, you know, what is your passion? What are your values? What do you like to do on vacation? How do you like to spend a slow morning? I think these are all great kind of questions to reframe what that time might look like.
1: Yeah, I think there are a few exercises that can really help us with that. And what we're really talking about is what does purpose and identity look like in our lives? Let me start with one that I don't talk about often, but I think it's important. When was the last time an idea woke you up in the middle of the night and you couldn't fall back asleep because of it? Like, did you ever pursue that idea? Like, these are the kind of questions we can ask ourselves when we're looking at purpose. My favorite one has to do with that life review that we talked about, but I learned obviously from hospice patients is imagine yourself on your deathbed bemoaning your life and saying, I really regret that I never had the energy, courage or time to Whatever comes next is a big part of your sense of purpose. And if that visualization doesn't help you, sometimes we have to throw ourselves into things we've never done and see how it feels. Sometimes we have to say yes to people or activities we've never done before and experience them and experience a little bit of life. You have to throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall until you decide what sticks. But unless you're open to doing that purpose work, that identity work, you're going to have a lot of trouble answering that question. When it comes to identity, I love to pose the question to myself or say the statement I am and then fill in the blank. And after doing that multiple times and multiple iterations, you get past the basics of what you do for a living or who your family is or what your basic achievements are, and you start digging deeper into how you really identify yourself. I remember when I first did this, I started with I am a doctor, right? And After I dug and dug and dug, I finally came up with, I am a writer, a podcaster, a public speaker, and it all coalesced into, I am a communicator. And that was an identity that was hidden beneath the surface. And I look back at my life and I realize, while I was working and feeling like I had time scarcity, there were all these projects I wanted to do, but I could never quite fit them in. So I would write an hour here or there on odd weekends when I happened to have enough time, And i always really enjoyed doing that but i told myself well you can't make a living doing that you can't make any money doing that so it's not really something you should spend your time doing but as i got more and more tired of being a physician i realized that there were these things that i was always fitting into small time allotments and always regretting that i didn't spend more time on them and those became the bulwark of what eventually purpose and passion look like
0: i love that and actually i wanted to pick your brain after listening to everything that you just mentioned, you know, imagine someone's listening to this podcast right now. They are a burned out physician or a teacher or insert whatever profession, probably everyone, but you know, obviously there are levels to this. Someone that is incredibly burned out right now. What are your suggestions to help them manage their mental health and or money?
1: So I think there are multiple things to do when you hit that area of maximal burnout, because I think it's a time where you need to make immediate change, but you have to do it thoughtfully. So I think the first thing for someone to do who's kind of stuck right there and then in that moment is to evaluate their current life and job situation. And the easy thing to start with is the art of subtraction, which I talk about in the book, is what can we get rid of that's giving us a lot of friction in life, right? So what are those parts of our job that are causing us the maximal stress? Do we have some financial space? Can we cut down on our hours? Can we switch jobs within the same company? Can we switch companies? Can we find a way to go part time and maybe we say, okay, my financial independence goals, we're going to put those off for another five years because I'm going to work part time now because I need this space in my life to breathe again. So it's being real intentional about your choices. You know, there's no doubt in my mind when I got to this point of burnout, I was in a place of real privilege. Um, I had enough money I was actually financially independent. So it's really easy to say Oh, of course, go subtract things out of your work life you don't like. But I want to remind people that money is one of many tools. And we need to start looking at all those tools we have available to us to deal with these kind of unhappy situations. So let me give you a different example of someone who maybe is just making enough money to put food on the table. Let's say you're in your early 20s, you just got out of college, you got a suboptimal job, it's not paying you as much as you want, you're working the eight to six or the nine to five, it's paying you enough to live. But that's it. And maybe you're even within a year or two, you're getting burned out of this job. And you're like, I need choices, I need to do something. How the heck am I going to use the art of subtraction? If I work any less, I'm not going to make enough money. Well, this is a great time to start looking at all those other tools we have. You might not have a lot of the money tool, but you're young, so you have your youth and energy, and maybe you have a little bit of time on the weekends. Could you start doing a side hustle on the weekends? And I wouldn't say just any side hustle. Could you find a side hustle that you're passionate about, something that gives you a sense of purpose and identity, and say, spend three or four hours a weekend doing that? let's say you do that and it brings you no extra income you're still stuck with your eight to six or nine to five but at least then you spent some time on your weekend doing something that was purposeful that made you a better person that you enjoyed but let's look at the other side what if you started that side hustle something that was purposeful for you and you happen to make a little bit of money so now you've created a little bit extra of this money tool next to your time and energy tools. Could you then use that to maybe cut down on that eight to six and make it a nine to five or maybe a four day instead of a five day a week job? I'm not saying you leave your job completely, but can you start subtracting a touch out because now you have a little financial space and see what happens? Maybe that extra day gives you more time to work on your side hustle and it can take up 50 percent of your income. Maybe then you can do that job you don't like only 50 percent of the time and build that side hustle up more. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but we've done a few things there. One is we've built purpose and identity into our lives either way, even if that side hustle never makes any money. And B, we've given us the option of possibly subtracting out parts of our work life we don't like. And so I think that's how we have to look at it. We have to evaluate what our tools are. We have to evaluate what our situation is. And then we have to subtract the friction out of our lives and start adding things with purpose. And I'm not going to say it's going to be easy. I'm not going to say you're going to be able to do it immediately. But I think people on all levels of the wealth continuum can start making these intentional choices, especially as we recognize that money is just one of the many tools we have.
0: So important. And yeah, I think... How can we spend even our limited free time in ways that try to refill our cup? You know, maybe that's talking to a friend or family member. You know, I know I'm guilty of this. Sometimes if I'm too tired or burned out, I just mindlessly scroll. But, you know, I've realized that's always not the best for my mood or my energy. And just kind of bringing that awareness to change, even if it's small and it starts out slow.
1: Yeah, yeah. And again, the point is, how can we be more intentional to add in the things that do give us purpose and eventually get rid of the things that don't?
0: Thank you so much. So in your book, you also mention the work of Bronnie Ware, who wrote this amazing book and has common top five regrets of the dying. And these include, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends, and I wish I had let myself be happier. Do you see these regrets working on the front lines in hospice and in, in your former position? And you know, what what else would you add to that in your experience? What have you seen?
1: So 100%. I mean, Brownie Ware wrote these regrets after interviewing people in palliative care or in hospice when they had a terminal diagnosis so very much so the only difference that I talk a little bit about in the book is I also want to transition slightly away from regrets and this is a financial book so I want to talk about investments, but not necessarily 100% financial investments. What I see is a lot of people are sad they didn't invest in those things that were important to them. And then it, that again gets back to purpose, identity and connections. But it gets to things just, you know, not just wealth, but education and family and self-forgiveness and all sorts of things that could be wise investments for us, uh, even if they don't change our bottom line at all. And then, of course, there are the financial investments that uh, if you do early and put your money in reasonable index funds in the stock market, those will compound and create wealth in the future. But I also want people's experiences to compound. I want their achievements to compound. I want their relationships to compound. So I wanna help people learn how to invest in all of those things now uh, and not just regret. The idea is ultimately that we don't have to regret much when we get to that place where you're meeting a doctor like me.
0: Love that. And yeah, I think it's so important for us to be able to use our money and invest it in a way that brings happiness and joy and memories for the future. And you mentioned in the book, this story about not going to Australia and how that's one of your biggest regrets. Can you share a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. I mean, I missed tons of trips. And one of them was when I was in, I think it was medical school or residency my sister moved to Australia with her husband, and he had a one or two year job there. And my whole family went and visited them and traveled and went to New Zealand, et cetera. And I kept putting it off because I was too busy. I had too much going on. I had to worry about medical school. And I also wasn't so excited about spending all that money. I mean, it was quite expensive to go there. Of course, that money I saved by not traveling You know, there's an opportunity cost to that, right? I put it in the stock market and it turns to tens of thousands of dollars. I could totally go to Australia now, but I can never go back and rewrite myself into that youthful adventure of being a 20 something with my fiance, seeing my sister when she lived there and had a job there. It that chance will never come back again. And so that's kind of the idea is that Some things do pass you by, and you have to learn how to enjoy them in the moment. And that was something I really had to learn too. That, you know, again, not only money has an opportunity cost, but experiences and other things do.
0: Yeah, that was such a powerful story. And I think something that so many people can relate to because we think, oh, I'll go later, I'll have an opportunity down the line. And then it's like, oh, but they already moved. And so now it wouldn't be the same experience to go on my Mm. own. And I could have stayed there. I got an insider's view, right? And so it was so relatable. And, you know, kind of on that note, how can people use their money to actively avoid the regrets of the dying?
1: So again, I think we have to just remember that money is a tool. And therefore, you have to think quite a bit about spending on those things that are important to you We don't want money to keep us from purpose, identity and connections. We want it to enhance them. So if you're in a place where you have no money, what are those other tools you can use to live a more purposeful and meaningful life? That's one part. The other part is if you are at a place in life where you have money or excess money, how can we be a good steward of that money, both to let it compound and grow and defer gratification, but also to use it from time to time now so that we can be living in the moment because it is true. Like my father who died when he was 40, you may die suddenly. And it would be a shame to put off doing those things you want to do now because you were saving that money for a time that never comes.
0: Yeah, that reminds me when I was in grad school in New York, I knew a friend of a friend who had, you know, saved all of her money and never spent any and was so excited to go on this trip to, um, I forget, some some island after she retired and she had passed away like the week after she retired and didn't even get to go on the trip. And I remember this person sharing this story with me because I was so, even back then, so upset and stressed out about my student loan debt that I was very worried about money, very worried about everything. And they were telling me this story as a way To kind of temper my mood and say yes student loan debt is stressful and you should care about it and pay it off but also no nothing is promised to us and you don't want to just be financially responsible and you know save all of your money until you retire and then you know you don't even get to go on that trip you've saved your whole life for right like we have to embed these experiences now and a little bit in the day-to-day so that we can continue to enjoy our life regardless of what happens.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's so important. I think that's exactly what we have to do.
0: So final question, what are some steps people can take to protect their finances and their family in the face of death?
1: So there are all sorts of things we can do to protect ourselves and our family. And the point is not to think about it when you've got a terminal diagnosis, but to think about it way earlier when you are healthy and have the time and space to talk to your family about these things and to plan. So a big part of risk mitigation is having the right insurances, right? So we wanna make sure we have life insurance like my father did, although unfortunately he had one policy instead of two. Um, We wanna have things like disability insurance, God forbid, instead of dying, something happens to us and we can't make a living anymore. Some people consider things like long-term care insurance if they're worried about needing pay for things like nursing homes. We also have to make sure our family and the people around us know our wishes, right? So this is the hard work of a will and testament. For some people, this is a trust. Certainly for almost all of us, it's making sure that we have all our accounts in order, right? And that we know if something were to happen to us, where's our 401k gonna go? Who can take care of our bank accounts? All of that kind of basic work needs to be done i mentioned in the book something called an ice binder in case of emergency this is where especially the person who manages the finances in a a family puts them down on paper in such a way that if something were to happen to them their spouse or other family members could follow along i think that's the financial part but the other part is that we have to think a lot about our legacy. What is our purpose, identity and connections? What do we want to pass on to our kids and friends and family members, if something were to happen to us? What do we want them to have of us when we're gone and start thinking about those things? Now, sometimes that's material things. Sometimes that's stories, sometimes that's experiences or time together. Uh, The key is to start thinking about that stuff now. So you can plan for the future.
0: Love that. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise on the show and your amazing new book. Let people know where they can follow you and purchase your book.
1: So the best place to find me is if you go to jordangrummet.com, J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There you can go and buy my book as well as... See my other platforms. So, I have a medical blog, which I was writing from 2005 to 2018, over a thousand posts there. I have a financial blog called Diversify, as well as the Earn and Invest podcast. Everything is there. The book itself, you can buy anywhere books are found, especially online Amazon, Books a Million, Target, wherever you buy books, it'll be there. And then, if you're interested in the Earn and Invest podcast, just go to earnandinvest.com. But any of those places, you'll find links to everything.
0: Definitely recommend this book. It is such a great inspiration on how to live life and manage your money. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise and bringing this beautiful new work into the world.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free Mental Health and Money Inventory Worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review. And you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.